right, tonight, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, we're dealing with the sixth commandment. And it simply makes this statement, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, he says, you shall not murder. That's it. Four whole words. And as we look to this, we can all probably agree that the sixth commandment truly reveals a lack of love. And with all that it's going on, with all that we do, um, the, the, the question is, is how do I deal with this lack of love in my heart for someone? How do I deal with this lack of love because of a situation that has transpired? Now keep in mind that love is always putting others above ourselves. But when we look at murder, keep in mind that when murder, you shall not murder, that is where it's the opposite of love and it reaches all the way to the point to that level of hatred where you are hating. And, and so often what this murder is, it also has to deal with encompassing of wanting vengeance. I'm, I'm hating the person for what they did. I think I should be the one to mete out the justice I want vengeance for the pain and the suffering that I have caused. But yet God says what? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now murder itself is often this elevation. It's an elevation dealing with um, anger. It's an elevation of frustration. And a lot of times that's what drives people to kill. They get so frustrated. They get so angry. They're, 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 they're so hurt that they don't give any of that to the Lord. It bottles up within them, and then they act out on that anger. They act out on that frustration. They act out on that desire to you know, bring vengeance on their own. And so how do we deal with that anger? How do we deal with those situations or conflicts that cause anger? How do I deal with anger in my own heart? And the, the, the scripture so beautifully teaches us to love peace, to pursue peace. Well, as we look to this commandment, it says, you shall not murder. Now, it does not state that you shall not kill. Keep in mind that God gives this commandment to an individual. This is a commandment to you. It's a commandment to me. You, I shall not murder. But keep in mind that what happens is that when the individuals in a nation, they also have this statement, do not murder, but it's also appropriate for a society. This isn't the individual, but society as a whole, those who are, are governing that society to meet out, we understand, corporal punishment but it's only for wrongs that are against society. It's only for wrongs, as God says, that would be against me. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21 for just a moment and begin looking at verse 12, I'm going to read from verse 12 down to verse 17. But here God is giving this declaration to the society. And he's already said, do not murder. But in verse 12, he says that he who strikes a man so that he dies, he shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation, verse 14, against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And in verse 15, he says, and whoever strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he's found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So there are times that this isn't murder, this is justice or judgment that's meted out by society. And that's different than murder. So why are we given this commandment to do not murder? What does it actually mean and how do we keep it? When we look at murder, when we look at the taking of a life, 
One thing that should be at the forefront of your notes should be at the forefront of your mind. And it might be something that you'll even jot down this reference right next to, you know, Exodus 20, 13. And that's this. There's a passage in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You know it when I give you the reference, but God is saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us have let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. We are made in the image of God. And what God is declaring is when he says, you shall not murder, he says, you shall not willfully take the life of one who's been made in the image of God. When you think about it in that way, now it has a whole new connotation to our minds and to our hearts. When we're looking at those individuals and those that have hurt us, they are still made in the image of God, and we do not take the life, we do not snuff that out, that life that has been made in the image of God. Because the human life has been made in the image of God, this is why God raises that life and the taking of that life so much that if you do what society does is society then takes your life. And so there's a punishment for willfully taking the life of one who's been you know, created in the image of God. When we look to this area of murder... There's sometimes parts of us that feel that we have been, you know, we've suffered a wrong. Someone has done something wrong to us. Now, it, it, it happens all the time, and when we've suffered a wrong, and sometimes it's either a physical wrong, someone did something to us, an emotional wrong, a spiritual wrong, what happens is we get angry. And sometimes that anger, as it continues to fester and boil and it's not given over to God in just simply confessing and, and repenting of that anger, we desire to mete out justice. We think that we are the ones that need to fix the issue. We are the ones who have to make it right. And because I have been hurt, then now I need to hurt in return. And so what happens is with this anger and the bitterness of our hearts towards that which causes the pain, understand, I want to lash out at that, but we understand that what? It's the sin that caused pain. And, and the scripture teaches us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now you hate the sin, but what does God teach us? Love the sinner, but hate the sin. And keep in mind that as we deal with those issues so often that, that we need to learn that when we are angry, just pour out your heart to God. And then let him heal, let him restore your heart and let him teach you that, you know what? God says, I'm going to judge this sin. I'm going to judge it in my time. And so we, we realize that, that when God judges this sin, he's going to do it in one way. He's going to do it rightly. When God judges the sin of men, he's going to do it absolutely perfectly. Now, my sin has been judged. Your sin has been judged. Our sin has been taken upon, you know, Jesus took our sin upon himself, took it to a cross, and it was judged. And so keep in mind that all the things that I have done, God has said, I've judged your sin rightly, and Lowell, I love you. And this is what happens when those wrongs happen, that we have to try to recognize what's going on in my own heart, and I have to give that heart over to the Lord. Because we're not always the one that judges rightly because when a situation happens, it becomes personal and I only look as far as me. I don't look outside of me. Remember when King Saul was rejected. God told Saul, you, you didn't listen to me, I'm rejecting you. And as a matter of fact, I'm putting in this other man, David, to be king. And what's interesting that there in, in 1 Samuel you know, Saul tries to kill David over and over again because God knew what? Saul knew that God rejected him as king, but he didn't want to give up the kingdom. He knew that God had called David, and so he tries to 
take out David. He's blaming David for his own sins. He's blaming David for the consequences of his own sin. And Saul himself now seeks to go after and he tries to, to kill David. And it's because of jealousy, it's because of anger, it's because of bitterness, because he doesn't surrender those things over to the Lord. Remember there in the Garden of Gethsemane, there in Matthew chapter 26, verse 51, and of course, Luke puts it out in a really amazing way there in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 52. It opens up that while Jesus is speaking, Luke twenty-two forty-seven, 47, behold, this multitude... And he was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, why are you betraying this? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Then those around him saw what was happening, and they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Understand, they're seeing this injustice, they're seeing this thing. Do we now fight? Do we now seek to cause someone to die? Now, in verse 50, it says, One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. That's Peter and Melchus. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priest, the captains of the temple, and to the elders who had come to him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? And so Jesus here is being sinned against. There's an injustice that's happening towards the Lord. And so the disciples, all of them want to realize, Lord, do we defend you? Do we take out our swords? Peter himself takes out his swords, cuts off that high priest servant Melchus's ear. And then Jesus does something amazing. He takes that ear and he puts it right back on Melchus's head. He fixes, he fixes that anger he fixes that retribution that Peter sought to do. He tries to fix the flaw of his, of his friend. And so look, so often it happens when we see an injustice that we want to fix that injustice. And sometimes when it, when it boils up to this point of not surrendering those things to God, it boils and it boils and it comes out to the point of hatred retribution, and then murder. And sometimes it's also where people just feel that they, they've suffered this wrong, either emotional or, or, or physical or spiritual, and it's so great that it moves me on to a point of vengeance, that I want to take matters into my own hands, and I feel that the courts aren't doing what they're doing, and, and so I want to fix it. I want to say there's an injustice being done, and all I'm doing is I'm leveling the playing field. It's tit for tat, that kind of a thing. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, keep in mind, it usually doesn't work that way. A lot of times we have that tendency of escalating it. But when it comes to vengeance, one passage I want you to be aware of, there in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, rather, um, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So he makes that statement, and I love the heart of it, because he says, hey, you got to give place to wrath. And, and he said, because it, the vengeance is the Lord's, he is going to be the one to repay. But we have this tendency of thinking that, no, I'm going to be the Lord's vessel in the retribution of this wrong that was done. Remember when we went through the book of Genesis, and there in chapter 34, we come to this passage where Jacob has this daughter, Dinah, and this young man named Shechem loves her, says he loves her, and he goes and he comes to this point where he defiles Dinah. He takes her virginity, and, and, and Jacob realizes what happens, and he simply holds his peace Initially, and then what happens is this, that Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, they have this point of treachery where they go to Shechem and they go to the people of the town and they say, listen, we, we can't give our sister over to some people who are 
uncircumcised. So if you become circumcised, then, then you can have her and you can take her. But until that, you can't have her. And so all the men of the town go through this process of the circumcision, and it's on the third day where it is the most painful. And the men are basically incapacitated. And so what do Simeon and Levi do? Well, they go through this gate, and it comes to pass, it says in in Genesis 34, verse 25, it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamar and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and they went out. It's interesting to see that they murder because of this wrong that was done to their sister. And they plotted it in such a way that they were going to wipe out all the males, not just Shechem, not just the one who did the deed. But do you understand how sometimes this act of vengeance has us go beyond what we're supposed to? And keep in mind that, that we are supposed to what let God be the one who fulfills the proper justice. God is going to be the one. Now, if you think that justice has not been fulfilled in the courts, make no mistake that justice will be fulfilled by God. And we need to be the ones to pour out our heart that is suffering to the Lord and constantly say, God, you know what happened. You know what's going on. You know where my heart is. But keep in mind that when your heart begins to go in that direction of wanting to mete out that justice on your own or vengeance on your own, you're now coming to the place of sin. It is one thing that God gives society that chance to say, retribution, justice, I will take the life, the society will, but not an individual. We do not have that right, and God doesn't give us that right. And so when we look to this, it's about society, it's about doing those things. And keep in mind that when it comes to taking of a life, in our society, we already recognize what? Murder is the key. When someone takes a life, then, you know, we're, we would hope that once they're proven to be guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt, then the society would step in and then they would take that life of that person. But it's interesting, in our society, this aspect of murder has become gray in in a very real, real way, in multiple ways. Think about abortion, the taking of a life of an unborn child. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. At what point is the child in the image of God? That's the key. It's not where people say, well, the life is here, the life is there, and, 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 but at what point is that child in the image of God? And at what point does God have an active relationship with that child that is in the womb? And these are the questions that we have to ask. Not, not, not when is it life or that kind of a thing, because so often, and you know that it's said that that child in the womb is a potential life, But we know what? No, that child in that womb is a life with much potential. It isn't where it may become a life. And so the question is, is at what point with that child in the womb, does God have an active, powerful relationship with that child? At what point is that child there made in the image of God? At what point does that child become now he's made in the image of God? There's a passage I want you to be aware of when it comes to this topic. And so when people ask about, well, when is this fetus? When is it really life? When does it feel pain? And we have all these other arguments. And that's the wrong argument. The argument is when, when does God say, now it's made in my image? The argument says, God says, now I have a relationship with this, this, this being, this child that was made in my image. In Psalm 139, a couple of verses to be aware of. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 18 so that you can follow me when it comes to this understanding of 
how God says that this life that is in a womb, it's not a potential life, but it's a life with much potential. Here in Psalm 139, verse 13, he says, You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me, for as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Understand that God says, every one of your days I've numbered. What does that mean? Well, it means day one in conception, God has it numbered. God already has it written in his book. And for the people who want to say, is it life, is it life, is it life? What's interesting is I was looking up when the blood actually is formed inside the child. And the blood actually begins to develop on day 14. On day 14, blood is there. On day 16 to 20, the heart is now formed and is pumping this blood. Absolutely incredible to see where God says, if God says the life is in the blood, then you've got to recognize by day 14, there's already blood, there's already life. But God says day one. I'm counting it as day one. As a matter of fact, what God says is before you're even there in the womb, I've already counted you. And so realize that God recognizes from the very moment that it is created, this is created in the image of God. This child is. And so he already has a relationship with that child before day one, definitely on day one. And so God is already working to establish that child and form that child. And, and it's God's work that is being done prior to the birth. And it's God's work that is being done after the birth. And so we're never fully, fully formed we're constantly growing, constantly maturing, and God does it from day one. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing to realize that when it comes to abortion, as our country has now made it legal to murder, one individual can choose or two individuals can choose to say, we want to take this life that's made in the image of God and we want to just erase it. We want to snuff it out. We want to not be reminded of it. But I want you to know that it's, it should be a true comfort to anyone who's ever lost a child in the womb. If you've lost a child for, for whatever reason, a child in your womb has been lost, let me stress this again, for whatever reason or whatever cause that child was lost in the womb, you can know that that child is safe with God. That's the blessing. And that child is there in God's comfort. That child is there in God's care. And, and God is going to deal with that child and watch over that child. But our society has made this area of, of murdering children inside the womb an area of grayness. And we argue, but we argue from a standpoint that isn't God. So the question always come back to, when is it made in the image of God? When does God have a relationship? That's what you're snuffing out. And so keep in mind the next point where our society, not so much in America, but we're going there. Sweden especially has this, where it's called the end of life. The term is called euthanasia. What do you do when a person is suffering? They've reached the end of their life and they're suffering. So what do you do when this life that was made in the image of God is suffering 
And it, it's to the point where it's going to die eventually, but it's going through a time of suffering before it dies. Can we stop that life? And I think what happens is this, that there's a term called active euthanasia, and that's the taking of a life. Um, and, and so when, when you have this active euthanasia, it's someone that is not hooked up into any machines. They're, they're, they're not having where a treatment is sustaining a life that is about to end, and you stop that treatment. That's called passive euthanasia. But this active is there, there, there's... The body itself is, is dying. The body itself is about to die. But the body itself, before it does die, is in extreme pain. So can we, because death is eminent, can you have this point in saying, I will actively end this life that has been made in the image of God because of the suffering? Well, keep in mind that, that active euthanasia is purposely that, that, that stopping that life that was made in the sight of God. And, and so one, this active euthanasia is trying to manufacture a release murder. The other, what happens is in the passive euthanasia where someone is at life's end, and you have all these machines that are keeping this person alive. And then what happens is you stop the artificial continuing of life. That's called passive euthanasia. And so you're just allowing a natural release. See, one, when the doctors come and they hook up to all the machines and they say, well, okay, now we, we, we've held on to this life. Do you want us to continue to hold on to that life? Well, keep in mind if that machine is what's keeping that person alive, and, and so you can say, no, there's a natural release that God has allowed. Stop the machines. And so that's, that's this passive euthanasia. But that's not murdering. See, that life is already in the end. The machines are artificially sustaining it. So one, Active euthanasia is manufacturing a release that a, a person isn't going to die right now. And, and the other is allowing for just the, the course of, of God taking that life on his own as the body's now stopping. And it's just simply stopping that artificial um, capacity that is holding on to that life. Now, active euthanasia is, is taking the life of a person that God is sustaining. I want to say this again. Active euthanasia is taking the life of a person that God is sustaining. Passive euthanasia is, is, is stopping or no longer sustaining a life that God is taking. Are you clear on that? Active euthanasia is simply taking a life that God is, is keeping alive. For whatever reason, in God's wisdom, God is holding on to that life, trying to teach the man or show the man or do something in the man. And so even though that man or that person is in pain, God is the one who's sustaining it. And so what happens is when you stop that life that God is sustaining, then it's murder. But when you, you, you stop the artificial sustaining of a life that God is taking, all of a sudden, that's not murder. That's just release. So keep in mind, there is a difference between the two. And the, the one that is in the, the driver's seat is God. God could, I, I, I've known instances where people have stopped the machines and the body continues. And so there's been that where it's God's choice, not man's choice. And so to stop the artificial sustaining of life, that is not, it's a passive euthanasia, but it's not murder. But when someone is being held on and, and they stop that life. Now keep in mind, there's no man, I do not believe there's any man who is able to conclude that the life that God is sustaining for whatever reason, because of pain or hardship, that that life should end. 
If God is sustaining life for whatever reason, there is no man that can conclude that, you know what, this life should end. If God's sustaining it, God is the one who's made the choice. When you say, well, it's only going to be a matter of days, then you let that be a matter of days. Well, what about the suffering? Then you, you ease the suffering. But there is a fact that God is the one who's in charge of that life, and God is still trying to do something in that life. And it's not for us to make the decision to say, I can end that life, this life that is in the image of God. I can make the choice of it. Let God make his choice. Let God be the one to be God. And so when we look to this area, I think it's important to realize that area of euthanasia, the, 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 the stopping of a life. Active euthanasia, clearly murder. Passive euthanasia, the freeing of a life that is being held up artificially. So when it comes to that taking of a life, that euthanasia, keep in mind that there's one other type of euthanasia. We call it suicide. And this is the taking of my own life, where I think that it's better if I was not here. Now, now keep in mind, if God has allowed you to live, there's a purpose for your life. And, and so we need to be those who cherish this life that is in the image of God. Now, keep in mind, there are going to be times of hardships. You're going to have times of suffering. But understand that we are stewards of this life. And we need to honor God with this life. It's not for us to decide ourselves that this life that God has established, that is made in his own image, that I can take my own life. There's a question, and I just want to make a point because... Maybe you've experienced this or you know someone else who has experienced where there's someone who had been a Christian and the Christian has taken his own life and the Christian had committed suicide. Does that mean that that Christian could not be in heaven? Well, understand that every sin that we have ever done before we were born was forgiven. Whether it's murder of someone else or murder of ourselves, that sin is forgiven. So if that Christian is a true Christian and he had a moment of weakness and he had a moment where there was a time where he was just, for whatever reason, he ended his own life. It doesn't mean that his salvation is taken away. If he's had salvation, his salvation is there. And suicide is not the unpardonable sin. And, and, you know, you could say, forgive me for what I'm about to do. You could, you know, not ask for forgiveness at all because God has already said what? That sin is paid for there on the cross. So when we look to this, I think it's important to realize that in our society, we have made some very gray areas, gray areas of abortion, gray areas now creeping into euthanasia, and, you know, gray areas when it comes to suicide. But if you're a Christian, you're walking with God, we do not take a life. God forbids murder, the murder of a child in a womb, the murder of a child, a person at the end of their life who's suffering. And we say, well, we want to release you from that suffering. And, and God hasn't released them, or we try to take our own lives. Those are all murder. They are all taught by God that these things are wrong. That's murder in our society. But there's another point to where Jesus began to teach us, and he taught on this commandment. You know it as well as I do. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Jesus making this statement, you've heard it said that whoever, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, as we look to this, keep in mind that here, Jesus is teaching that one of the things that deal with murder is what we were discussing initially when we started this, anger. Anger. So the, the question is, is that when we do have anger, we have these things. The, the, the biblical question is this, how do we deal with conflict? 
Do we get angry? How do we deal with that anger? How do we deal with the, the anger? How do we deal with the conflict? And, and so think of conflict in this way. There's a bus route, and that bus route is not called the 23, is not called the 69. The bus route is called conflict. And you're on this bus, and keep in mind that every one of us have been on this bus. Every one of us have been on the route in some form of conflict. Now, when it comes to conflict, comes to this route, there are many different stops on the way. You can get off early. You can get off in the middle. At the very end of that route, the last stop is called murder. When you get off there, that's the end of conflict. Now, this is where it reaches. The final cumulation is murder. But all the stops going up to is what? You're on the path to murder. When you're on that route, when you're on that bus and you're going on those stops, you get off at any place. But keep in mind, we've all been on that bus. And, and so most of us won't go to that last stop, but all of us have been on that bus. All of us have been on that bus. And so what do we do when we are angry at someone. And Jesus makes this statement back in that passage of Matthew chapter 5. He makes a statement in verse 22. I say, who's ever angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the counsel. Whoever says, you fool. Understand that, that you're, you're looking at your brother and you're using these despairing terms. Now, when you look at a brother and you look at them despairing, disparagingly, and, and so you're, you're, you're looking at them and you're thinking that you're a fool, you're thinking that you're a raka, you're thinking that you're useless, and, and so how many times when a situation comes do we respond in anger? And we respond in anger simply because we think that the situation hasn't gone the way that it should. I've been disrespected. It should have gone like this. There's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 5. You guys know it well. It deals with this commander of the army of Syria by the name of Naaman. This man, Naaman, the commander of the army, has leprosy. And eventually this young slave girl from Israel says to the master, you need to go to, to Israel, there's a prophet there, can heal you of your leprosy. And it's interesting that, that Naaman goes to the king. Eventually Elijah calls him to himself. And what happens is this, verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 5 declares, Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. He's there in all of his pomp. He's got horses. He's got chariots. He's standing at the door. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. Notice, Elijah doesn't go out himself. He sends a messenger. And he says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you. And you shall be clean. And notice that he gets this prescription to heal him of his leprosy. And verse 11 makes this declaration, but Naaman became furious. Boy, talk about, hey, like, I'm coming to you because I'm in need. Oh, this is how you fix it. But he becomes mad. He thinks he was, that a situation should have happened differently. I, I love the heart of it because eventually he becomes you know, furious, verse 11 says, he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me. See, he wanted Elisha. He didn't want a messenger. He wanted, he didn't want just to be healed of his leprosy. He wanted to be honored and elevated. And, and, and so he said, surely he will come out to me. Stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. He wanted signs and wonders. And he's thinking, why should I go in this dirty river? I got rivers back home that are far better. And it's interesting how Naaman becomes angry. Why? Because of a perceived diss. Now, Elisha says, hey, send him me and I'll make sure that he's healed. And Elisha does. He makes sure that he's healed. He sends out a messenger. goes dunk seven times in the Jordan. 
And through that, it wasn't the way he wanted. And so this anger begins to just, just overpower him. And he becomes furious. And it's interesting that isn't, you know, this is the opposite of love. It's this anger, this furiousness. Because remember 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long and is kind. Like, be patient. Just, just listen to what it is. And, and I, I think it's interesting to see what happens with this commandment. There is um, a catechism. It's called the, the Heidelberg Catechism. And in dealing with the Sixth Commandment, I want to read to you what this Heidelberg Catechism says as far as the meaning behind the Sixth Commandment. It opens up this, I am not to belittle, to dishonor, to wound, to hate, to insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, my look or a gesture, in other words, gesture, looks can kill, and certainly not by my actual deeds. I am not to be party in this or to this with others, and rather, I'm to put away all desire for revenge. It's interesting how he talks about all the little things, a look where you desire to kill with a look or your thoughts or your words or your gestures, that, that you would belittle them, you would dishonor them, anything that is not loving them. And so it's interesting that the question is, is your heart pursuing peace or is it pursuing conflict? Naaman here, he's like, I'm ready to go. Let's, let's take this on. And what's interesting is there in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We realize that when you begin to think less of someone, and, and sometimes people think less of someone that are of different races, Sometimes people think less of someone who are in different classes. In other words, I consider myself here in society. I consider them down here in society. There are, are times where, you know, we, we, we look to people and there's a, a, a portion in our society that actually has a classification of the people who shop at Walmart. And the people who take buses, they're called bus folk, and, and they look disparagingly on them. The people who have to go to a goodwill in order to, to pick up dishes or pick up clothes or, or those kind of things. And, and so we realize that they are on a lesser class. When you begin to look at and, and think less of someone, those who may live in poverty in the inner city, how do you look at those who are thugs? How do you look at those who are in the street gangs? Do you see them as a lesser class? Do you look despairingly on them? Do you think less of them? Or do you simply say, wow, I don't love the sin, but I can love the sinner. See, our problem is we look at them less. And when you look at them less, you belittle them, you dishonor them. You are literally committing murder there in your heart. And so there's a lot of people that have this ethnic or class hatred. And, and sometimes it's not a, an ethnic or class hatred. Sometimes it's a ethnic or class indifference. Well, let me kind of share with you what that indifference is. It's kind of like not loving your neighbor. It's sort of like just going around them on the road and going about your own life. There's a passage, I want to share it with you, found in Luke chapter 10. There in Luke chapter 10, I want to start reading in verse 25, and I'm going to read down to verse 37. But it declares this, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, Oh, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he said, Answer said, Well, you shall love the Lord with all your, your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. Love God, love people. And he said, well, you've answered rightly. He says, do this and live. 
Now, as the guy looks about loving his neighbor, it says in verse 25, but he wanting to justify himself. Because you can actively love someone, you can actively hate someone, but you can actually actively be indifferent to them as well. So when he asked this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus, in verse 30, answered, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, and who, was, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. We know these thieves were not, were not loving their neighbor. And by chance, verse 31, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Do you realize what happened? This man was indifferent to the need of this person because he was a Samaritan. He looked down as a lesser class. He was indifferent to the situation of this man in need. And it was simply indifference. Now, when this man asked, he says, well, 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 who's my neighbor? How do I love him? Jesus said, I want you to know, here's a priest, and he's indifferent to the situation. Likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked. He actually saw and said, well, maybe the man will live. I think he's okay, but he doesn't act on it. He passed by on the other side. Do you realize that there is an indifference to the need of this person. And then lastly, we see this. But there was a certain Samaritan. The Samaritan comes, and as he journeys, he came where he was. He found the man who had journeyed. And he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and, and he poured oil and wine and he sat him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, says, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of the two do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Which of the two loved his neighbor? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. I think it's interesting that we sometimes say, well, I would never murder. And Jesus said, it's a heart issue. Are you in that area where you're conflicting? Are you in that area where you're literally looking at somebody and you're dishonoring them? You're looking at someone and you're belittling them. You look at someone and you insult them. You look at someone and you're indifferent to them. You simply go around and you walk another way. And when you become indifferent to a certain group, so often what happens is in our society, we have this area where we disassociate ourselves from certain parts of mankind. In other words, we make sure that we disassociate ourselves with the inner city. We make sure we disassociate ourselves with thugs and, and gangs. And we disassociate ourselves with, with, with drug dealers. And the bottom line is when you aren't around them is one thing, but when you look to them and you belittle them, when you look to them and you dishonor them, when you look to them and you insult them, and you consider yourself so far above them, superior in your class or, or in your, your understanding, in your education or in your wealth, whatever it is, keep in mind, we just move to the other side and we ignore them. And what happens is we disassociate ourselves from parts of society. And when we do, it's like, I don't have to be concerned about their struggles. I don't have to be concerned about their sufferings. I'm just going to ignore it, walk around it, ignore it, just go on with my life. And what I do interact with is this. I only interact with those who are my peers. I only interact with, with those who I consider my, my equals. And everyone else, click, I unfriend. 
Uh, you're not part of my page. You're not part of who I am. And it's interesting is I, I, I interact with those, and we often interact with those who are of the same mind. And when someone is living a life that we perceive as what kind of sinner are you? They're living a life of homosexual. They're living a life of drugs. They're living a life of gang. And we look to them and we become indifferent. We literally dishonor them. We, we insult them. We, we are on the bus of conflict. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to do those things. So, so what happens is I'm only going to interact with those who are, I'm of like mind, of like class, of like persuasion. I want to deal with those who have the same political thoughts. I don't, I don't want to go to, you know, if I'm a Republican, I don't want to hang around with Democrats. If I'm a Democrat, I want to, I want to hate the Republicans. And, and we look to those who are only of the same. And if they have a different thought, then we judge them. If they have a different culture, then we judge them. Now, keep in mind that people can have different thoughts. They can have different lifestyles. They can have those things. But when we come to the place of simply saying, I'm going to be indifferent towards you. I'm going to reject you. I'm going to do everything I can to stay away from you, to isolate myself, to be like the priest to be like those that were there moving along the road and going to the other side. And within that, I think it's so interesting to see how the, the, the priest came, the Levite came, those who should have been sharing the love of God. They, they walked around the man that was there that was wounded. We become indifferent. The important thing is this. We need to embrace all life. In your heart, in your mind, in your attitudes, we need to embrace our life. doesn't mean we embrace the sin. We know there's a difference. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. We wrestle not against the flesh and blood. But when it comes to this, when it comes to praying for them, being okay to minister to them, and not simply just try to put them out of sight and out of mind and, and walk around them so I don't have to be face-to-face -face with them. When we look at the homeless men, they're carrying the signs. What do we do? And I, I think it's interesting that we are to embrace life. Paul wrote it this way in the book of Romans, chapter 12. We've already read verse 19, but I want to back it up right now and read 17 through 19 because he says this, repay no one evil for evil. And then he says this, not only do you not re repay evil for evil, don't do to someone what they've done to you. He says this, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Do you realize? Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And you're saying, Lowell, there is no good to the street thugs. There are no good to the gangs. There are no good to, to these people that I have labeled as less than. I'm going to ask you one question. Just one question. These people that you or I might look down to, only one question. The question stems from a passage in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27. Have they been made in the image of God? Are they still made in the image of God? Is God counting their days? Does God want to have a relationship with them? That's the question that we have to ask. And if you can say no, I would say, one, you're wrong. And you've got to repent of that attitude. But he says, and I love what he says, he says, you need to have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If you can find nothing good, realize there's one thing good. You have been made in the image of God. That's a glorious thing. And then he says this in verse 18. If possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now keep in mind there are some people that you cannot physically minister to. 
There's some people that you cannot minister to in the physical way. But it doesn't mean what? It doesn't mean that you still belittle them or you think less of them, but you elevate them as saying, you were created in the image of God and I want to pray for you. I want to lift you up. I want to see you come and experience fully all that God has for you. And then when he says this, as much as possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Don't get on the bus of conflict. Stay back, pray for them, love them, bless them. And then seek to pray for them, seek to encourage them, do what you can. And then he says in verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves nor give place to wrath. Don't get on the bus of conflict and start you know, heading down the path. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is the heart. Now understand, once again, this message is not meant to condemn. It isn't. We look to those areas and say, well, I've never murdered. I've never murdered. But I'll, I will, you know, look to our own heart and realize, have I ever insulted someone when they shouldn't have been insulted? Have I ever belittled someone in thought or in word or in deed? Have I ever dishonored them? Did I ever give them a look to say, wow, you are less than me. And yet they've been made in the image of God. And I think it's important, this message is only meant to reveal areas in our heart. It doesn't make it, it doesn't fix it, it just reveals it. And if there's an area where you realize, wow, Lord, I may not have murdered, and everyone who sat around Jesus said, I've not murdered, I've not murdered, but I'll guarantee you when Jesus made that declaration, he says, yeah, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I'm saying who's ever angry with his brother, if you belittle him, you call him rocky, you call him fool, if you begin to look down at him, then all of a sudden you've done what? You've already committed murder in your heart. And it's an important thing to recognize that there are gray areas, true gray areas in our society when it comes to murder and it comes to why people allow themselves to Stay on that bus and not repent and not turn and realize, God, you are the God who's going to bring vengeance. You are going to bring, if the courts aren't bringing justice, you will do that. You've done all these things. Abortion, euthanasia, suicide. But then in my own heart, the murder that comes when we look at another class or we look at a different ethnicity of people, when we look at someone and say, you are less than when they too were created in the image of God. Father, we do ask that by your spirit, by your spirit, Lord, that you would create in us a new heart, O oh God. Create in us a heart, Lord, that, that doesn't look down on people who are less than. That we don't look down on people who are in sin. That we don't look down on people who are different. But that, Father, that through your spirit, we would look at the sin and realize that that sin they're in bondage to, and we would have compassion, and we would, we would recognize, Lord, that they are losing, losing life, losing a connection with you, not being able to experience you and your grace and your goodness. But, Father, we would pray for them. And we would seek to, if possible, Lord, not just walk around them like the priest and the Levite, but seek to say, Lord, how can we actively minister? If I can't do it physically, can I do it in prayer? Can I do it in love? Can I draw you closer to the one who, in whose image you were made? The one who loved you and formed you in the womb and is counting all your days. Father, teach us to love. Teach us to love and in, 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 in all of its concepts. And, and teach us, Lord, what, what murder is in our own hearts. That when we, you reveal it through your spirit, that we can just repent of it and turn. 
We've all been guilty of it, Lord. All of us have been on that bus. Everyone have been in an area where we're going down the road of conflict. And some we only enter into thoughts. Some we enter into where it begins to boil up in our heart. And some we enter into deeds. Forgive us, Lord, for those thoughts. And the welling up of our heart, not surrendering those things to you and the deeds that we've done. But Father, we give you all this. We give you our hearts that you can work in them and, and show, Lord, that our lives can declare how much you love this world by simply being able to love them and not murdering them in our minds, in our hearts. Do the work, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said.